I just think we're doing or we're all trying to do what we should be doing as people. It's not that I'm particularly amazing. It's just that we should be doing, everybody should be doing what they can. That's really what it is. And I really, really, truly believe that, that we should never ignore someone in need. We should never ignore suffering if we have the ability, the means and the resources to change that. And that's all that I'm doing and that's all that everybody should be doing. But if, if everybody just gave what they could, the world would be such a better place. That's Ashley Fruno, activist extraordinaire, warrior of compassion, and this week's guest on episode 68 of the Unplugged podcast. Hello and welcome to another inspiring week of the Unplugged podcast, where we unplug from status quo and shift the paradigm from head to heart by co-creating a more passionate, compassionate, loving, and interconnected world. This is the place where you'll hear powerful conversations with the courageous truth seekers of today's rapidly changing world. This is a podcast that inspires critical thought, informs conscious choices, and engages in conversations that are often ignored. And the motivation for these conversations is to inspire you to disengage from the judgments of the culture of conformity and engage with what lives inside your soul. Truth, purpose, creativity, and love. And my name is Debo Zarko, warrior of truth, status quo crusher, and passionate lover of life, here to welcome you to your almost weekly dose of authentic expression, truth, and open-hearted inspiration from my paradigm-busting headquarters in beautiful coastal British Columbia, Canada. This week, I'm really excited to share a powerful conversation with my friend and fellow co-creator for a better world, Ashley Fruno. And Ashley and I first met in Vancouver when we were both actively participating in the local animal rights movement. And I've since kind of altered my way of thinking about the animal rights movement. I don't disagree with it at all. I do believe that we all deserve the right to uh, a life that is free of suffering. And that to me, is really the epitome of the paradigm of uh, interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it. What's different for me nowadays is that I don't really participate in the the leafleting and the placard waving that I used to in the past. And I feel like, for me at least, the evolution of activism means engaging in really powerful conversations that inspire as I say at the beginning of this, uh, this introduction, critical thought, compassion, love, and really just a return to our core essential nature. And that to me is uh, a really powerful form of activism. But I do not negate any form of activism because activism really at its core is about creating a better world. So when I talk about meeting Ashley, uh, gosh, it was maybe 10 years ago now, back in Vancouver, I was a leafleting, placard-waving, in-your-face kind of activist. And that was part of the evolution of where I am right now. And it was an important evolutionary, what should I call it, transition, I guess, to where I'm at right now. Life kind of knocked me flat. If you've been hearing this show, you know that I've had some hard knocks in life that have actually turned out to be really beautiful gifts that have led me to a more expansive way of being. And this expansive way of being includes this podcast, for instance. But uh, uh, Ashley is a beautiful soul and I am so grateful for her presence in the world and for her ongoing commitment to activism for a better world for animals, for the earth, and as a result for humanity. Now, since Ashley and I met in Vancouver, she's since gone on to work for PETA for the past eight years and is one of the few full-time people working in their Philippines office. And Ashley has now been living in Manila, as a matter of fact, for quite some time. And that's how we connected. She's in Manila for this conversation and I'm in 
beautiful Sunshine Coast, as I mentioned. So Manila, hmm, a radical departure from Canadian culture, North American culture for sure. Now PETA. Yes, PETA brings up a lot of really interesting feelings and thought for many people. And it's one of those few paradigm-altering organizations that has a very long history of inciting controversy, even from within the animal activist movement. But love them or hate them, PETA has and continues to make a difference for animals. And I'm going to admit that my own thoughts on PETA tend to fluctuate. But the bottom line is that I am truly grateful for this organization for enlightening me at a time when I was ready to transition from a longtime vegetarian to vegan. Or as I more accurately like to uh, define vegan now, a person more aligned with my core values of love and compassion for all living beings. So PETA was actually my gateway into veganism and the, uh, the metaphoric red pill of truth for many animal issues that I actually knew little about at that time. And that was back in, gosh, 1999. That's when I switched from vegetarian to vegan. So I'm going to admit that uh, PETA's information really, really shook me. And although the truth did set me free, it really did piss me off. To quote Gloria Steinem, who actually says, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. And for many years, it, it really pissed me off before I remembered that I too was indoctrinated into the very same consumptive culture of separation that we all are. And that for me, it's been a continual journey on the path towards wholeness ever since. So I may not always agree with all of PETA's strategies and tactics, but I do wholeheartedly agree with their mission statement that animals are not ours to eat, wear, experiment on, use for entertainment, or abuse in any other way. It's pretty simple, really. And quite frankly, when I think about the state of the world today, in this very moment, it just seems ridiculous that we even need to create a mission statement like that. What is wrong with the human species that we continue to do this? Strange, very strange. But anyway, PETA is, is uh, PETA makes waves. Let's put it that way. So, but this is more than a, a podcast about PETA. This is about Ashley Fruno, who is about so much more than PETA as well. And today's conversation explores so many important topics such as passion, courage, compassion, love, and purpose. And today's conversation actually touches the very essence of what it means to be a human being with a calling that serves a greater purpose that makes the world a better place. And if you've been listening to this show for any length of time, you probably know that I love quotes. I love great quotes. And I found one that epitomizes Ashley and it goes like this. Say how you feel, leave the job you hate, find your passion, love with every ounce of your bones, stand up for the things that matter, don't settle, don't apologize for who you are, be brave. Now, unfortunately, I have no idea who said that. It's just one of those memes that's out there, but I love it. And it really, as I said, epitomizes Ashley. It really is Ashley Fruno, my soul sister in compassion, my friend, a friend to the animals, humanity, and the earth, and an inspiration for us all. So I implore you to open your mind and your heart and allow yourself to be inspired. Enjoy this week's show. I'm just really grateful that you're here, Ashley. You and I have been emailing back and forth for quite some time, trying to figure out timing to make this happen. And you're way over in the Philippines. I'm in BC and we've made it happen. And you look great and you sound great. And I'm really grateful to bring 
you onto the show and just share your essence with everybody. So, so again, thank you for, for being here. And thank you so much for having me. So exciting to see you. Yeah, yeah, this is great. And, and uh, just for, well, listeners won't know, but you and I met um, when I was living in Vancouver, and that was probably, I would say, well, we moved there in 2005. So I think we met you pretty, pretty close to our arrival. So it would have been like spring of 2005. So we go back 10 years now. That's crazy. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I was like 18 or something. <laughs> yeah, I was just a child. <laughs> and, uh, but you were just as passionate then as you are now. But I know like there's so much that has happened in that 10-year time span where I moved back to Ottawa and you've moved all the way across the world. And I'm really excited to know your journey and for you to share that with, with listeners and also with me because I'm, it's like catching up not only with me, but with thousands of listeners around the world. So <laughs> Ashley, I know you as like this really passionate, um, loving person who is dedicated, very dedicated. You've dedicated your, lives to, your life to animals and it's a beautiful thing. I saw it when you were 18 and I mean, you're, you're 10 years older now. You've been doing so many amazing things. And um, like I said, you've committed your life to animals. And I know that you're willing to go to no expense to make a difference, which is so powerful. And that's, that's the light that I see in you that I want to um, shine on this show. So, um, and you're working for PETA now. And you've been working for PETA for how many years now? Eight years. Eight years. Wow, that's almost the entire time that we've known each other, except that we'd moved back to right. Ottawa. So yeah. Anyway, so I'm curious um, if you could just share your journey to the work that you're doing today and where you are today, how you like how you got into this, what drives you, what your passion is, and um, yeah, just where you are today. Okay, that's such a broad question. Um, but one, one that I'm excited to answer. Uh, for me, I've always loved animals my entire life. Uh, and I guess the connection didn't start immediately because when I was a child, I was kind of scared of dogs and I didn't really know how to read them, but I always felt compassion to others who were exploited or who were looked down upon, um, people who were judged or bullied. Uh, I was sort of always rooting for the underdog. And when I was seven, I found a vein in my chicken nugget at McDonald's. Uh, with my family. And I asked my mother what it was, and she was just very matter-of-fact about it. It's a vein. Animals have veins like us. They're the same as us, and we eat them. And for me, I didn't really connect the fact that I was eating a chicken nugget with the fact that that was a chicken from, you know, like the farms that surrounded our house, chickens as in the animal. I just never connected that. Um, which I think a lot of kids don't. And from that point forward, I started phasing meat out of my diet. But as I was seven, it was semi-difficult for me. My parents weren't entirely supportive, uh, you know, which is understandable at that point. And I didn't really know any other vegetarians. I'd never really heard of someone who was a vegetarian in real life, you know, aside from The Simpsons. And <laughs> um, I was just really confused about how to go about it. So anyways, I was sort of on and off vegetarian. I did the whole I only eat meat on certain days. I only eat certain types of meat thing for a number of years until I was 12. And at that point, I started volunteering for my local animal shelter. And I met a woman there who was a vegetarian and just having someone a role model in real life who you know validated the fact that vegetarians could exist and could exist healthily uh, made it much more easy for me to switch to a plant-based diet so from then I became vegetarian and I saw a video when I was maybe 14 um, called meet your meat which I would encourage all of your listeners to check out it's on uh, PETA.org, or you can view it on meat.org as well. Um, it will change your life if you haven't already seen it. It's just basically the meat and the egg and dairy industries in 12 minutes. Um, and it's narrated by Alec Baldwin, who at one point says, if you drink milk, you are directly supporting the veal industry in this very chilling voice. Um, and at that point, I realized that I could no longer support these industries that exploited animals in this way. Um, and I wanted to go vegan, but my mom was raised on a dairy farm and was always very adamant that 
milk was an important part of our diet and you know you can be vegetarian but it's ridiculous to be vegan that's so extreme um but of course compassion is not extreme and over the next two years i sort of gradually phased it out and my parents gradually became okay with it uh so when i was 16 i finally made the plunge to go vegan um and obviously as you said now i work for PETA, which is an awesome organization. The reason that I work for PETA is because I've never, never found another organization that aligns with my beliefs in the way that PETA does and that they will take the animal side every single time. They're not afraid of being extreme or afraid of being disliked. We will just do what needs to be done. Um, we're not here to make friends. We're here to make people think. And that's what I love about it. So it's very, it can be very in your face. It can be very confrontational, but at the end of the day, PETA shakes people up. We make people think about their decisions. Um, and we hope that, you know, that sparks change in their lives. So in a nutshell, that's my journey and how I got where I am today. I live in Manila, as you said, which is a, a crazy place. Um, but there's a lot of change that needs to be done here and I'm happy to, to be doing that. So how did you end up in Manila? Like, that is very cool. Like, and it's such a far cry from Vancouver. <laughs> it is. And how, okay, so let's, let's, let's back up a little bit. So how long were you working in, for PETA? Now, were you working for PETA in Norfolk, in Virginia, at their Virginia office? Or did you go straight to Manila? Yeah, that kind of those questions tie in together. So I actually interned at PDUS three times, which was a great experience in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, and when I first interned at PDUS, I was just out of high school and that sort of solidified what I wanted to do. I knew at that point that all I wanted to do was be an animal rights activist. I didn't want to do anything else ever. Uh, so it was terrific. And I actually applied for a job with PDUS, but because I'm Canadian, they weren't able to hire me. It's very difficult for Canadians to get work visas in the U.S. and I didn't have any sort of special degree or skills. So uh, long story short, I got offered a volunteer opportunity in Asia to work with PETA Asia for just a week um, because a donor had uh, given some frequent flyer tickets or something. So I ended up doing that. And then at the end of that week, I got offered a job and I dropped everything and moved to Manila. <laughs> so you're uh, kidding. Wow. I'm not kidding. Yeah. Oh my God. I, that is amazing. I didn't expect to stay here. Initially, I only said that I would come for one year, but I found what I wanted to do. So I'm not going to leave. And yeah. how long have you been there now? Eight years. Oh, you've yeah. been in Manila eight years. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So the whole time you've been with PETA. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. I that know. <laughs> is amazing. That's it amazing. Went by so quickly. Okay. Now I am curious. You got to Describe what Manila is like and what you're doing there. Manila. Yeah, that's so hard. It's, I feel like in the international media, Manila is represented as somewhere that is dangerous and um, poverty stricken, which is, is actually an, an accurate representation. But, um, but in terms of danger, I think people are, are overly, or foreigners are overly cautious and, and the media presents it in a, a very strange way. But um, anyways, it's, it is what it is on TV. It's congested, it's polluted. There's people stacked on top of other people. It's just an insane amount of people living in an insanely small space. <laughs> um, it is, there's a lot of open poverty. It can be a very depressing place. Uh, we're actually based in Makati, which is the financial district, which we call the bubble because the government of Makati has made this like perfect little world. And then when you step outside of that, it's just completely different. So yeah, um, it has its charms and it has its uh, disadvantages as well. I've definitely come to consider it my home, which was a long process. <laughs> For the first four years, I wasn't exactly a fan of of living here, but now I love it. Um, I love the people. I love the culture. I can speak the local language. So, uh, yeah, it's just been a journey accepting it as the place where I'm going to stay. But, uh, now that I have, I, I really do love it. It's not for everyone, but it's for me. So that, yeah. that's really, it's very cool because it must be, a, well, maybe not so much now, but initially it must've been an extreme culture shock. I would imagine. 
Of course, an extreme culture shock. And at first, for the first four years, I think it was just very difficult to be in an environment where um, I just felt like it was hard to relate to people. Uh, At that time, when we first came over here, there wasn't a lot of expats. So seeing a foreign woman was very rare. Now it's it's a lot more common. But uh, just the people's people's reactions to me or seeing me on the streets, it was just very isolating. So. Now, I'm curious, why would PETA have an office there? What, what sort of work are they focused on out, out you know, in that part of the world? Well, this is actually our Asia headquarters. So we're headquartered in Hong Kong and Manila, but our campaign's office is based in Manila. And the reasons are, the first is that it's cheap, so we can pay staff a lot less. So obviously I'm not from here, but I can make a lot less here and and do fine and live well off of a lot less than I could in Hong Kong or the U.S. or anywhere else. Um, at the same time, the rent for our office is cheap. Our supplies are cheap. We can get anywhere in Asia really cheaply on budget airlines. So it just makes sense economically. And then also, because English is widely spoken here, especially in Makati, it's easy for foreign staff to get around without knowing the language. It's easy for us to have temporary staff and interns here without um, having to translate for them all the time. So it's just, it's an easy place to be. And economically, it's it's the best option. And how many co-workers do you have? Um, right now, we have, let's see, about eight people in the office. So that includes three interns. And then we have staffers based in Vietnam, Hong Kong, China, and Taiwan. So just one person in each place. <laughs> That's cool, so though. Have... So you're, all, you're spread out throughout Asia then? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we have remote staff. Yeah. Okay, now I've seen some of the work that you've been doing on Facebook. I see, you know, you, you seem to do a lot of dog rescue or dog, work with dogs, which is interesting because you said that you were afraid of them when you were a kid. And now you're doing a lot of, <laughs> now you're doing a lot of yeah. work with dogs. But I'm curious to know, um, you know, is is that your primary focus or do you have, uh, yeah, just tell me what sort of projects you work on in Asia. Sure. Well, actually, the work that you see on Facebook, I'll start with that, is a separate volunteer project that I run called Passi Pups, which is not a project of PETA. So that's something that I do on the weekends or in my spare time. <laughs> just because so- you don't do enough during the week, right? I just, I saw a need and I filled it. You're passionate. Um, That's what we started with. You're passionate. Yeah. And I think the, I think the reality or for me is how I see it is I'm just doing what needs to be done. I'm just doing what everybody should do. I really, really do believe that if you have the ability to give back in a certain way, then you should absolutely be doing that. The world is not a good place and we should all be trying to make it better. So Pasai Pups, we work in a small area in the city of Pasai, which is just um, not too far from Makati or the main area of Manila. And it's an informal settlers area, which means the people that live there are um, squatting on the land illegally. Uh, There are some places in this area that are very poverty stricken where the people really don't have enough to get by. Um, our mission is to enable those people to take care of their animals well, to provide them with the resources and the example to treat their animals kindly. Uh, we provide basic veterinary care, such as spaying and neutering and vaccination treatment for basic illnesses. We also lead by example, so we care for the animals every week. We provide walks, we fill water bowls, we give them nutritious food. Uh, There are a lot of chain guard dogs. We work with socializing them. We get the children involved in the community and taking care of animals as well. Uh, In in general, we just just lead by example. That's really what it is, is it's community-led animal welfare is what we try to call it. So... And, and uh, what, how is it being received by the people? People there are very grateful. And one of my initial worries in starting the project, which sort of happened accidentally, but um, when it started, the project started growing, I was concerned that people in that area would be wondering why we're not helping them. Um, but in fact, everyone has been extremely grateful. We've never had a problem, never had anybody question our motives um, because the animals are in most cases so important to those families, so important to the children, especially people are just grateful for any help that we're able to provide. And a lot of times 
or most times, they really want to do what's absolutely best for their animal. They just don't have the means or the resources to be able to do that. So to be able to provide that is a really beautiful thing and something that the community is is very welcoming of. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, because, I mean, that's something that I, someone like myself would, would have no clue about. I mean, I think about these far-off places, and like you said, the way it's portrayed by the media is, you know, that these people are heartless in a lot of ways but it sounds like there is a lot of compassion that just doesn't really know how to express itself and you're just like you said leading by example yeah that's exactly it and I feel so fortunate to be a part of that community um that's my favorite place in Manila is to be there and I think a lot of people find the area overwhelming you know there's trash everywhere um a lot of the homes don't have adequate uh, bathroom facilities, so there is open defecation. Um, it's smoggy and it's polluted, but I absolutely love it there because people are so welcoming. Uh, everybody knows me and I know everybody. And my I, people are always concerned about safety as well. I never feel that my safety is threatened. People watch out for me just as I watch out for other people. Uh, it's just, it's a really beautiful place. I really love being there. So with Passi Pups, again, I, on Facebook, I've seen um, on the rare occasions that I'm there now, but on Facebook, I've seen that you've, you've done some pretty significant rescue efforts, I guess, when they have these extreme weather events. Yes, uh, that's both with PETA and with Passi Pups. Uh, in Manila, flooding is pretty much the normal thing. So uh, the Philippines is hit by 20 typhoons a year, and PETA is always ready to intervene when there are animals in distress. So we do find ourselves doing a lot of rescue work. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's just, it's part of what we do. It's part of what needs to be done. So what kind of work do you do with PETA? Now I'm curious about the campaigns that you're working on there. Everything and anything. <laughs> um, because we're a small office and we work in a very large area, our primary goal is education. So the main campaigns that are most important to us or that are we really spend our, our time on the most are fur, veg, and animals and entertainment. So fur is still big, unfortunately, in many parts of Asia, and a lot of people just don't know about it. It doesn't have the same, um, you know how in the U.S. or Canada, I feel like if someone wears a fur coat walking down the street, someone's going to say something. People are going to glare at you. <laughs> it's just socially unacceptable. But in Asia, it's not quite there yet. So we're trying to make that happen. We're trying to make it socially unacceptable to wear fur. Um, and, <laughs> and we are winning for sure. We're definitely getting there, but it's a work in progress. And I think that a lot of the people that wear fur here just literally have no idea. There isn't enough information about it in Asia about how these animals are treated. So that's one of our main goals. Um, vegetarian is obvious because that's the single most effective thing that you can do to help animals is just to go vegan. So with every person that goes vegan, we're literally saving a hundred animals a year, probably more than that. Um, so providing localized information about a vegan diet in as many countries as we can. Uh, we just launched our Philippines specific vegetarian vegan starter kit. So already since we launched it just at the beginning of the year, we've distributed 10,000 copies of that. It's literally making vegans left, right, and center. So it's very exciting. Um, and we also work on animals and entertainment issues as a primary goal with a focus on Mally the elephant at the Manila Zoo. Um, she's sort of a project we've taken on because we are based here. It's easy for us to get involved in local issues. And Mally, she's the only elephant in the Philippines. And I'm sure that most of your listeners know that Elephants are very social animals, so depriving them of socialization is inherently cruel. Uh, and she hasn't seen another elephant in over three decades. So we're trying to get her transferred to a sanctuary in Thailand, which is it's an amazing place and somewhere that she will definitely be happy at. We've been campaigning for her freedom for about... Ugh, a long time. It's been about three years since the campaign has really picked up steam. And hopefully we'll be successful soon in seeing her transferred. How's it going? Is it looking promising? We're very hopeful. Um, we're not going to give up on her ever. 
So we believe that she will be transferred eventually. Uh, unfortunately, the the government of Manila and the government of the Philippines as a whole has not been, I guess, prioritizing the issue in the way that that we feel that they should be. And and again, for them, it's it should be a simple decision because it should be this is the right thing for Mali. This is a compassionate thing that we can do to improve her life. But, you know, there are politics involved and nothing is ever that simple. Uh, politics and egos. It, yeah, I was not going to say that, but yes. Egos. That's okay. I'll say it. <laughs> I'm going to blurt it yes. out. It's more egos than anything else. It is. Let's just, let's, let's just say it like it case. is. <laughs> yeah, it's it's unfortunate um, that it has come to that. But yeah, it's about politics and saving face, unfortunately. So PETA is willing to fund and to organize the entire transfer. So it would come at no cost to the government or the taxpayers. Um, and it would just be something that the Philippines could do to say, look, we're, we're so progressive. We're getting rid of our elephants. And by getting rid of, I mean transferring her to a beautiful sanctuary where she could have a fabulous life. Um, but, you know, there are so many zoos around the world that are closing their elephant exhibits in recognition of the fact that these animals just do not belong in captivity. Of course, no animal belongs in captivity, but the scientific community has already you know, the research is there. These animals just can't thrive in these environments. So. Yeah. And I mean, what a shock recently, uh, you know, on that same topic that Ringling Brothers is finally going to phase out the elephants in, in their shows, which I say with air quotes, I mean, they're going to do it in three years. And I agree with Ingrid Newkirk. Why wait that long? It's been so bloody long already, but um, there seems to be like something, something shifting. There's a big shift. But there's still these damned egos that interfere. I mean, it's the same thing with that seal slaughter out in, you know, eastern Canada that just continues. Nobody wants it. Nobody wants the byproducts of the slaughter either. But it's just those egos that just keep perpetuating this madness over and over and over again. And it's eventually I think that they're just going to go the way of the dinosaur, these people and their belief systems. And it's yeah. like people like, you know, you and me and, you know, all the listeners out there that are actively saying no to all of this crap. That's that's how we just turn our back on it and create something that's better and more in line with who we actually really are. Exactly. Everybody is capable of sparking change in their everyday lives. If we're all the most compassionate people that we can be, we're all going to make a difference in some way or another. There's no excuse. There is no excuse. That is so true. There's lots of reasons for compassion, but no compassion, no excuse. So I'm really, uh, I'm curious, I know, because you've been, you've been doing this for eight years right now, and I'm sure that, well, I, I don't even know if I told you this, but um, I actually applied for a job at PETA back in 1998, it was, and I went down for a working interview, so I was down in Norfolk. And um, I was going to be hired as a graphic designer. So I actually had the skills. So I know you said it's very difficult to get a job without a, you know, without a visa. But because I had the mm-hmm. skill set that they wanted and they couldn't find it down there, supposedly. Yeah. I got, I was hired, or I was actually invited for the job, but I turned it down because my father was, was very sick at that point in time. So I didn't go, which I'm grateful for because I was here for the last few months of his life. But um, it's, it's uh it's an interesting organization. And, but I remember just being there for that week, being immersed in the culture, how there is just, (laughs) it's just like one horror show after another. There's just so much cruelty that is being exposed and, you know, placed into the forefront of consciousness. And honestly, when I think about the way things happened in my own life that things didn't work out for that job I'm grateful because I'm such an empath I don't think I would have been able to handle it so I'm curious for you what is it that um like what drives you to do this work day after day after day even on weekends because this is heart-wrenching work it's hard work I mean it takes a, a tremendous amount of um I don't even know what the word is, but consciousness is one, but it also, tra- it, it, it takes a lot of inner strength to be able to do this over and over again. So what is it that just keeps you going? I think the cruelty that you're describing that we see every single day is what motivates us to keep going. Um, and I think it's really easy to get caught up in, in all the things that we're not doing or that we, the animals we can't save, but 
we have to focus on the ones that we can. And that's something that I see a lot with pass IPOPs as well. Um, you know, for example, there, there are tragedies all the time in that community. Uh, New Year's last year, we had four dogs die from firecracker poisoning within just a few days. Um, and that's just because people were careless. They didn't clean up the firecracker waste. Um, but we didn't, or I did, but <laughs> we tried not to dwell on how awful the situation was and how it, it, it could have been preventable. Um, but instead think about how we're going to change it. So this year, this past New Year's Day, we held a cleanup drive in the community. We cleaned up all the firecracker waste. Um, we also hung up banners in the community ahead of time saying, this is dangerous to your animals. If you're, please don't let your animals out during New Year's celebrations. Please ensure that they're not drinking contaminated food or water. And this year we had no animals die from firecracker poisoning. So mm. it's, it's just the change that we can create, even if it's really small, even if it, you know, we only would have saved a few animals. Four dogs is not a lot, but it, it matters a lot to those families and to those animals that were affected. So I think that thinking of the positive change that we can make, even when it is a small number of lives, um, you know, if you rescue a dog from a shelter, it's only one dog, but to that dog, it is everything. So we can all make a difference even in a small way and small ways are still huge. That makes me think of that starfish story. You know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, where, I do. Where the beach is all littered with starfish and there's this kid throwing starfish back into the ocean and somebody says, why are you doing that? And you're not going to be able to save them all or whatever it is. And the kid says, well, it makes a difference to this one and to this one and to this one. So it's the same same thing that you're saying there. I mean, that's a, that's a powerful story, powerful metaphor for exactly what you're doing in reality. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm curious, along the same lines, so you're doing this heart-wrenching work and you're focusing on the positive. Um, I'm coming from my empath side here. So <laughs> putting myself in your position, I'm wondering what it is that you, like, so is there anything that you do to keep yourself sane and grounded so you don't end up with burnout or compassion fatigue? Because it, it sounds like you're doing this work nonstop, but what is your me time? It is pretty nonstop. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that it's really important to, in any social justice movement or, or anything that you're doing, to allow yourself to unwind, to recognize your own limits, and to ensure that uh, you're giving your body what it needs to be productive and efficient. For me, um, I love CrossFit. It's awesome. It has changed my life in so many ways. <laughs> um, so every morning, pretty much, or five to six days a week, I do CrossFit. Uh, I also, I like running as well. So if I still have extra energy after work, I'll go for a run in smoggy, polluted Manila. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also make time for, for friends and to, to Skype friends back at home, to Skype friends and family. Um, to be able to connect with other people. So situations like last night where I went out drinking, for example, <laughs> um, that's, that's me time. And then of course, every, every few weeks I do allow myself to have a Sunday off. Usually Sundays I'm working or uh, volunteering, but, but every few weeks I do find that I just need a day to, to sleep and to catch up on errands and chill and, and do nothing basically. Yeah, and I think that's, um, you, I mean, you brought that up right at the very beginning, how important it is to have me time so that, you know, and, and to, that self-care. It's so important because if we're not caring for ourselves and we're going to burn out and then we're going to be useless for everybody. So I'm glad to hear that. Exactly. Okay, now you've already, you, you've started talking about some of the success stories, but I would love if you've got some really outstanding success stories that you can share with listeners about the work that you're doing, whether it's with Passi Pups or with PETA? Just some hands-on stuff that you've done. Sure. Um, I think with PETA, it's a little bit more difficult here in Asia for us to gauge our success because, as I mentioned before, we're mostly doing, although we have had a lot of small victories, a lot of the work that we're doing is education. Because we're a small office, we work in a huge area, and animal rights is a newer concept here. So the work that we're doing is mainly getting to people to think about how their habits are affecting animals. And that's not something that is easily measurable. Um, in Passi Pops, the work is obviously a lot more tangible. Uh, we've already 
we vaccinated about 700 animals in this area. We've spayed and neutered about 250 now. Um, and we make a huge difference in animals' lives just by being there. I think it's safe to say that. Uh, and we, the, the problems that we treat sometimes are just so easy. For example, one of the common illnesses that we deal with is extreme vitamin deficiencies in puppies because a lot of people feed their animals just plain rice or they scrounge for garbage and they're not getting adequate nutrition. Um, vitamin deficiencies affect animals really quickly and in a lot of cases the puppy won't be able to walk properly or is paralyzed in um, their hind legs. And with vitamins, the puppy can you know, regain the ability to walk. That's an amazing thing. And it just needs someone to be there, someone to provide that medicine, which costs about $2 a month. <laughs> um, and and we, can, we can save a life that way. We can give the puppy back the ability to walk and give that family back their companion. So um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing what, what resources can do when people really don't have them. Now you, you've had a couple of dogs. You had Gracie. Yes. And, and Clover. Clover. And <laughs> yeah. now did they come from these situations? Do you want to talk uh, a little talk a little bit about these two? These are your babies. Sure. Yeah, they were actually from totally different situations. Um, and I do have a cat as well, Lola. Uh, my cat came from the street in Manila and Grace was rescued through PETA. Actually, we received a call about a starving dog in a city about two hours from Manila. So we basically went out there and found Grace. Um, and her owner was intentionally starving her, we believe, uh, not providing any food or water, it seemed. She was less than, or sorry, a little bit over 12 kilos and we rescued her. And at her optimum weight, she was about 30 kilos. So she was less than half of her, her oh ideal. Oh my God. Mates. And she was a Doberman, right? Was she? She's a Doberman. Yeah. Just like a, a skeleton and almost totally hairless. She was really ugly physically when we found her, but she had this beautiful personality. She was so gentle and so kind. Um, and that's how we named her Grace because the grace that she granted to people. She was so forgiving of them, even though she had suffered so greatly at the hands of her owner. Um, and we've since filed charges against her owner for animal cruelty, which is still ongoing and it's been about three years, but, um, but we are hopeful that he will be charged. So, uh, I had Grace for two and a half years. She was my constant companion. She was a very, uh, just a very unique soul. She, she was so happy all the time about everything. <laughs> um, and I think when you rescue a dog, it's amazing what little things can do for them, like things they haven't appreciated before, they've never had before. Um, Grace loved food, obviously, given her situation. It was very easy for her to regain the weight that she needed to because <laughs> she ate everything. Um, <laughs> but when... <laughs> As time went by, she started becoming more picky. So if I gave her lunch that she didn't like, she would just stare at it and wait for me to get her something better. Um, she was amazing. And then shortly after Grace died, uh, I rescued Clover from an animal shelter. She was already about exact age is not really known, but I would say 11 or 12 when I got her. And I only had her for about 10 months. And she was sort of the exact opposite of Grace. Grace was very needy. She wanted to be around me 100% of the time. Uh, Clover was very affectionate in her own way, but she wanted to be left alone a lot of the time as well to sleep. She was about 90% blind and hard of hearing as well. Um, but she was just a very cool old lady, very grumpy, very feisty, knew what she wants. <laughs> you know, she was, she was amazing. Um, and she was the least food motivated dog I've ever <laughs> met. Like trying to find something that Clover would eat was impossible. <laughs> um, so when I picture them, I was just talking to a friend about it. We were saying, we're not really sure if like dog heaven exists, but if it does, then for sure, like Grace and Clover have met and they're talking and Grace would be like, I love tofu. Did you try the tofu? And Clover would be like, 
I don't like tofu. I didn't I didn't like the tofu. And then Grace would be like, did you try the pizza? I love pizza. <laughs> and Clover would be like, no way. So <laughs> um, I just picture that Clover, yeah, everything that Grace loved, Clover was super not into. Um, but she was, yeah, she was a very fun girl. And she, she was diagnosed with cancer um, in September. And... Uh, yeah, unfortunately she passed away at the end of October, but I was, even though our, our time together was short, I felt very grateful to have, to have met her and to have been able to love her. She was, she was an amazing dog as well. Both of them were. And it's so beautiful that you adopted such a senior with so many health issues. Cause that's, I mean, already, you know, that the time is finite. It's going to be very short in to be able to put your heart out there like that, knowing that it's going to be broken probably fairly rapidly is, uh, is pretty special. Yeah. Grace was an older dog when we got her as well. She was about eight, we think, um, when she came into our lives and she inspired me in so many ways. I feel like Grace made me such a better person. Um, and I, I adopted Clover as sort of, I felt like that's what Grace would have wanted me to do. Um, I specifically wanted to adopt an older dog and Clover was the only one at the shelter. Um, and when I looked at her, I just instantly knew that she was the dog for me. And she'd been at the shelter for three years. Um, and apparently no one had ever expressed any interest in taking her home. So Aww. that's just, that's just so sad. A dog. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure, you know, when you rescue a dog, especially an older dog, you have no idea what the first, eight to 10 years of their life was like. So I just can't imagine uh, the cruelty that both of them suffered. But to be able to give them a last few months or a few years is a really beautiful thing. I'm really happy to have been part of that. And I love what you said about how you feel that Grace made you a better person. I totally can relate. Totally, totally, totally can relate. I feel the same way about Jesse. And well, any of the dogs that I've had, cats too but more the dogs actually they they yeah. have, there's something about a relationship with a dog and grieving that relationship is um is very hard when it's over because their lives just never are as long as ours exactly now i want to get on to um PETA, <clears throat> PETA again because you brought it up in the very beginning about how PETA can be a little bit confront you know confrontational and controversial they have this reputation Everybody knows it. That's just who they are. So I'm curious about what do you say to people who don't necessarily agree with their tactics? <laughs> um, I think that even if you don't agree with PETA's tactics, if you surveyed 10 vegans or, let, yeah, let's go with 10 vegans, and you said, why did you go vegan? I think that the vast majority of those people would say because they read something that PETA put online or the PETA handed them or they watched a, a, a PETA video. That's really what does it for the vast majority of people. I think that they play a really important role in waking people up and getting them to take action. Um, and we can't deny that. Even people who hate PETA, most of them <laughs> don't deny that we are effective. Mm-hmm. We draw attention to issues that other people don't bother to go anywhere near. Um, and I think, you know, the naked demos, it's very controversial. People don't like it when we, uh, wear lettuce bikinis or, um, do I'd rather go naked than wear fur events, but it's just a fun, provocative way to draw attention to a serious message. And it works. People turn their heads, it raises their eyebrows, it makes them think. And my uncle, um, he's a psychologist. He always said, it's not, you know, how long, how how long your newspaper article is that you get about an event, but just the fact that you got something in the newspaper because people are keeping a tally in their minds. And it's like, if we look at the issue of fur, how many fur advertisements they saw or how many anti-fur events or messages they saw. And it's just a tally. Mm -hmm. Who will win? I don't really know if that's true. I'm not sure. But um, if we're looking at it, every single animal rights photo or protest photo that people are seeing, it's just it's exposure to the issues. Um, and especially in Asia where animal rights is such a newer concept, just being exposed to these messages, I feel like is so important. And PETA is doing that. Mm. You know, you said how 
if you surveyed 10 vegans, they would say it was a PETA thing. Yeah. I'm one of them. Yeah, right? it was it was PETA. I mean, I was vegetarian. I was vegetarian when I went to the PETA office for that working interview. And well, I was vegetarian, but a few days beforehand, I switched to vegan because I <laughs> <laughs> I knew that if I wasn't vegan, that I wasn't in line with their message. And it was yeah. the best move that I ever made. And then when I came home, I got rid of my leather shoes and I had this suede jacket that I was in love with, but I looked at it when I came back from PETA and it revolted me got rid of it and it just they so yeah they changed my life totally I get it that's so, awesome now I, I'm also curious now you say you started there eight years ago and mm -hmm. you've been working in Asia the whole time and I know that you said that um, most of the work that you're doing is educational so it's hard to measure the success but I'm curious overall overall like I know Asia is it's a whole other culture when it comes to animals but have you noticed anything that might indicate that there is a shift in awareness and that people might be embracing kinder choices as a result of this movement that you've brought over to asia definitely it's a hundred percent yes um even <laughs> even just in manila when we first when i first came here eight years ago it was difficult to find vegan options. You had to really know where to go. People didn't know what vegetarian meant. And of course, there are still struggles for sure. Um, but so many restaurants now have vegan options. There are more vegetarian and vegan restaurants in Manila than ever before. Um, there's a community on Facebook called Manila Vegans. <laughs> like there's with it has over a thousand members. There are tons. There's a, a huge growing vegan community here. Um, and I feel like every single year it's just getting stronger. There are so many, we even have, there's three in Manila, there's three vegetarian lunch delivery services that like just do like lunch box type things. Three, like that's insane. It's Manila. That's amazing. You know? <laughs> I know it's crazy. So I think that, um, just looking at that alone, we can really see the change that we're creating. Uh, and it's, it's getting better every single day. It's amazing. And do you think that represents um, the bulk of Asia? I do. I think, yeah, in every country where we're active, um, we're definitely seeing uh, increases in awareness, especially amongst youth and especially because social media uh, is growing so rapidly that people are able to just share information with the click of a button. And that's a really amazing thing. I know you're not on Facebook right now very much, <laughs> but, um, but I'm, wor is. I'm working, working hard to, to get some stuff out there, but I'll probably be spending more time on Facebook once it's all out. Yeah. <laughs> Changing the so, world. Yeah. Yeah. I think that Facebook and social media in general is just such a really powerful tool in, in creating change and spreading awareness about animal rights. As much as I hate it, as much as I resent the time that I'm spending on Facebook, I do think um, it's, it just enabled us to get so much farther. I have to say, though, you know, whenever you write one of those long posts, every time you write those long posts, this is on your personal page, but whenever I, whenever I read those, it's like, man, I wish you were here because I just want to hug you so hard. You just you put so much passion <laughs> into those posts about how much, you know, it's usually something about animals or even about um, women's issues as well, which is mm -hmm. you raise so much consciousness, even with your personal posts. You just never stop, girl. Thank you. <laughs> That's a very nice compliment. <laughs> but it's awesome, though. I love it. I love it. <laughs> That's really funny. Thank you. That's good to know. I'll keep <laughs> ranting on Facebook. <laughs> That's what I use Facebook for. <laughs> yeah. That's what it should be used for. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, I'm really grateful to hear that about Asia. Now, I remember, um, okay, okay, I'm curious. This is kind of brought up a, an interesting question based on my own personal experiences. Because when I was in, when I did that working interview at PETA back in 1998, Ingrid Newkirk had just come back from a trip to Asia. And this is when the whole, and she was just so upset about what was going on with leather there. That was the whole, the whole Indian leather campaign started at that time. And I remember, um, sitting in this room and I had idolized Ingrid for years and there she was at the beginning of the, at the front of the room. And I was listening to her speak. And I was like, I was 
bawling. I was the only one in the room who was bawling, but I'm such a suckhole. <laughs> but anyways, I, I thought, how can these people not be crying with every word that she said? There, there was just like, it was getting to me. But I remember then that she was committed to uh, a campaign against the cruelty that was happening to create the leather in India. And like I said, that was 1998. Is that when, um, this is just a curious question here. Is that when PETA Asia began? Was that the, the inception of it? No, actually there's PETA India, I should be clear, and PETA Asia. Okay. So PETA India just works in India. And I think that uh, PETA India was started roughly around that time, but PETA Asia was a few years after that. Okay. So eventually we hope to have, you know, PETA China, PETA Philippines, PETA Japan. <laughs> um, but at this time it's just PETA Asia that encompasses that all just because we don't have the resources to have more offices. But I'm grateful yet. that you guys are there though, that you're raising consciousness in a way there and getting, <laughs> getting into their faces over there. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we can do that, too. <laughs> now, what it's is so badly needed? Yeah. What's the response like? Um, I know you've been arrested a few times. Yeah, <laughs> I have. So, <laughs> what it, I, I know and we know that PETA's tactics are controversial and they're in your face. And so how how culturally, how does it differ doing the sort of things that you do there? as you know, compared to what it would be like if you were doing them here? I think if we're looking just at the public's reaction, generally people are very receptive. And I think that's largely because animal rights is such a newer concept. People don't have any stigma about it. You know, they don't have um, that vegan friend of theirs who got sick. They just, mm, they just don't have right. that. <laughs> so, um, People are generally extremely open to talking to us, to taking our information, and are generally very curious. Um, we find in general in Asia, people take our pamphlets. It's not like in Vancouver or somewhere where everybody's like, your shoes are leather, plants feel pain, right. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, trying to come up with an excuse. They're, they're being defensive. Um, here, it just doesn't happen as much. So that's that makes it so much easier for us because it's just, it's easier to talk to people about these issues because they don't have any preconceived notions about them. They just don't know anything. Um, it's like a blank slate and that's, that's so amazing. In terms of governments um, being receptive towards our tactics, obviously that really depends on the country. I have been arrested and deported a number of times. Yeah, it keeps it interesting. Uh, my job is pretty cool. <laughs> Um, but we, I mean, we can't expect every single country to, to welcome us with open arms, I suppose. Um, but even when we do things that get us arrested or that cause controversy, of course, we're still making people think we're still getting the message out there and that's worth doing. It's so obvious to me that you are really on purpose. Like you're really dedicated. I'm curious to know what you feel your ultimate life messages my life message I think it's really simple um, and that's just be the most compassionate person that you can be and give everything that you can give um, sometimes I feel frustrated when people uh, this is going this is not going to come out probably the way that I want it to but sometimes if I post something on Facebook about something that past IPOPs did or that I did or that PETA did, people are like, you're awesome, you're a hero, yay you, blah, blah, blah. Um, for me, I just think we're doing or we're all trying to do what we should be doing as people. It's not that I'm particularly amazing. It's just that we should be doing, everybody should be doing what they can. That's really what it is. And I really, really, truly believe that, that we should never ignore someone in need. We should never ignore suffering if we have the ability, the means and the resources to change that. And that's all that I'm doing. And that's all that everybody should be doing. Um, but if, if everybody just gave what they could, the world would be such a better place. Ashley, I love you. I love you too. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a beautiful answer. Thank you. Thank you. That's what I talk about ad nauseum, but it's always in my own words. So to hear it in somebody else's words from somebody else's heart 
and to um, and to be able to feel it through your words is so powerful and so beautiful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So we've talked about we've talked about this word a few times. So I'm just going to throw out this word to you, and I want I want you to tell me the first thing that comes up for you. Okay. The word is compassion. I think it's just living with love. For me, is just trying to be a kind person. And sometimes that's really challenging. The world is, as we already went over, is kind of a horrible place. Um, But every single day we have the ability to project something into that world and it should be love and kindness. It really should be. Um, But for most people, we just go about our daily lives. We don't think about other people or other beings. Um, And I feel like that's really tragic. I think it's very difficult for me to relate to people who just live their lives for the purpose of living them for themselves. I really can't understand that. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's always been difficult for me to have relationships with people who don't, I guess, get it. But, um, but yeah, I just feel very strongly that every single day we all have the ability to make a difference, big or small, and we all should be doing that. That's a powerful message. Wow, I'm glad I asked that question. I've never done that before, but it just was one of those things that just kind of popped in. (laughs) Okay, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad you answered. Thank you. Okay, last question. And it may just be an expansion of what we've already been talking about, but let's just go with it, okay? So this podcast is all about unplugging from status quo. So my final question to you is, what do you feel is the most um, powerful statement that can be made to unplug from status quo and plug into the essence of who we are? So our hearts that inspires um, the creation of a better you, so whoever the listener may be, and a better world as a result. I think it's really important to not be afraid I think in our everyday lives, there are so many things we refrain from doing because we're scared of doing them. We're scared of how people will think about us, scared of what, you know, what's going to happen. Um, but I really think we just all need to get over fear. Like, for example, in Manila, if you feed a stray dog, people stare at you. They act like it's absolutely ridiculous. And there are a lot of people who I know who you know, don't engage in that sort of compassion because they're worried about what other people will think. People walking by, people that they know. Um, but we just, we can't live our lives in fear of judgment. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't help anyone or it doesn't change the world. And again, if we all just weren't afraid of what other people were thinking of us, the world would be, would be so amazing. Um, people would be doing so many more amazing things than they are now. So um, I think that's my message. Just don't be scared of being who you are. Don't be afraid of being compassionate. Just get out there and and live your life and get out there and change the world. I have goosebumps. Thank you. (laughs) You're right. It would be an unrecognizable world if we stopped worrying about what other people thought and just acted from our hearts. Yeah. Ashley, thank you so much Thank you so much for, for being a part of this journey and for sharing your, your love and your passion and your compassion and your purpose-driven self and, yeah, your essence. Thank you. And thank you for being a part of my life. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, too, for being a part of my life and for reaching out to so many people and sharing your message with others. That's amazing, and I'm so happy that you're, that you're doing that and touching so many lives. There you have it. Ashley Fruno bears her heart for all to hear. And I hope she inspires you to do the same because the world is desperate for a collective population of people who have come alive in their rapidly beating, powerful hearts filled with love for all living beings. And I'm always interested in your thoughts on the show, so don't be shy. You can leave a comment at debozarco.com backslash Ashley Fruno. Or if you're a little quieter and you don't want your voice out there, send me an email at deb at debozarco.com. 
I always love getting your emails. I love when you engage with me because this is a show about engaging conversations and your voice matters. Okay. You hear that? I'm going to say it again. Your voice matters. And I also answer every single email and I respond to every comment. And I know that commenting is kind of one of those things that, yeah, people ask for, like me, I'm asking for it, but we often think, yeah, yeah, whatever. But you know what? It matters. So if you feel so inclined, leave a comment. Again, that's debozarco.com backslash Ashley Fruno. And just, you know, share your thoughts. It's that easy. And if you're going to send me an email, I want you to know I answer every single email. I don't believe in gatekeepers. I mean, what's the point of connecting with an audience if you've got someone guarding the fort? That's not connection. So again, and again, and again, don't be shy. You can always send me recommendations for people you'd like to, uh, you'd like for me to approach on future podcasts. And I'll let you know that I work my butt off to get everyone on the show who you recommend and mention to me. And sometimes it works. And other times, the gatekeepers lock things down. But hey, that never stops me. I always return again and again and again. Because you know that saying, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Which is why I'm able to get such quality guests on this podcast. So I'm persistent. And I also want you to know that the topics of this week's conversation, such as Passai Pups and the Free Mally the Elephant campaign, will be in the show notes back at the home site. Again, debozarco.com backslash Ashley Fruno. Go there, check out the show notes, and there is lots more goodies. Lots more stuff there for you to peruse. And as always, I am forever grateful for your ongoing support by subscribing to this podcast and also all of you who have left a review or who are considering leaving a review, it matters. I'm also grateful when you share this with your friends and, uh, and on social media and any other way that you can think of to spread the word of compassion, purpose, authentic expression, and love for all life on this beautiful but ailing planet that we all share. So thank you, 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 thank you. It means the world to me. And that's it for another Unplugged podcast. May we continue to open our hearts on our evolutionary journey of awakening to the point where our heads can no longer make sense of it all. My gratitude is always with you for being out there and caring enough to listen. And even more so when you care enough to engage. Again, your voice matters. And remember, live with passion Live with purpose. Change the world.